From the studio on the University of Georgia campus, this is Unscripted. I'm your host, Alan Fleury. On each episode of Unscripted, I'll be talking to scholars, artists, journalists, and leaders from all corners of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, as well as guest speakers and lecturers to the UGA campus. In January 2022, scientists from around the globe embarked upon the International Thwaites Glacier Collaboration, an expedition to the Amundsen Sea Polynia in Western Antarctica that included a research team led by University of Georgia Marine Sciences professor Patricia Yeager. While an array of projects associated with the expedition were focused on sea level rise and the physical processes related to melting, Yeager served as co-chief scientist and lead PI on the project Artemis designed to better understand the impact of melting glaciers and ice shelves on the coastal ocean's biological productivity. Dr. Yeager joins us today on Unscripted. Thank you for being here. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. I know you've been back on campus since March, but can you set the stage for the trip a little bit earlier this year? I know there were a lot of extra precautions due to the pandemic. Right. So put yourself back in the fall of 2021 when we were all very worried about COVID and um, just getting physically qualified or what we call PQ'd was a big deal because um, some of us that had uh, co-occurrences or, or comorbidities or things like that that made us a higher risk didn't actually get to go. So it was a really big challenge just to get on the list to go in the fall. And then we had um, almost a month of quarantine Wow! prior to getting on the ship. We all left December 7th, I think. And we flew to San Francisco for a week, and then they flew us to Chile on a chartered plane. And then we spent two weeks in isolation in Chile. Um, beautiful, beautiful place. <laughs> you know, if you were going to quarantine, it was a lovely place to quarantine, sitting in Patagonia. Um, and then we had a week on the ship where we were all still wearing masks and being tested. And finally, after about a month, we could pull away from the dock, all healthy. Wow. Wow, so you pull away from the dock, but then it's quite a voyage. Right. Then we had 65 days at sea to do all the work. So we got back in the middle of March. Right. And how long does it take to get Antarctica from where you were in Chile? So you cross the Drake's Passage. Um, that just takes a few days, depending on the weather. <laughs> and, then, um, and then the place where we were going, I mean, you can get to the Antarctic Peninsula in just those four or five days. But um, the place we were going is in the middle of the South Pacific, about halfway between Chile and New Zealand. And so it's about a two-week steam from, you know, the, the, from the peninsula over across to the Amundsen Sea, mm. which is pretty far away. Yeah. So you, two weeks, you steam to the peninsula and you get there and everything's fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, we're all tired already, but um, yeah, then the work, then the real work starts, right? We've been planning and packing and unpacking and setting up and all this for weeks, and we finally get to actually start the science. Um, and what we found when we first arrived was there was too much sea ice in the area that we wanted to go. So we had to go around. This is normal for working in the Antarctic. The Antar this particular area, the Amundsen Sea, is highly variable from one year to the next. Mm. The, it sits right at the edge of a big low-pressure system that blows wind like crazy. And so it often pushes the ice in different places. Um, and the pattern that we set up this year was to push all the ice into the eastern part of the Amundsen Sea, um, blocking our way to the Thwaites Glacier. 
And so we went around that big blob of ice into the Amundsen Sea from the other side, from the west, and could get to other glaciers, um, which we also studied, the Dotson and the, the uh, well, the Dotson Glacier, mostly, or the Dotson Ice Shelf, primarily. So. so there's some flexibility built in. Well, yes. So this is the entire West Antarctic ice sheet is very large, and it, and it comes down and meets um, the Bellingshausen Sea, which is a little bit to the east of the Amundsen Sea, and then a big bunch of it comes down to the Amundsen Sea. Yeah, so, and all of it is melting very, very rapidly. The Thwaites is melting the most quickly, and so that's why we were focused on the Thwaites. It's also the largest. Mm -hmm. It has the most sea level potential behind it, about uh, a meter, (laughs) which is a lot. (laughs) So... um, and not a meter that's going to happen tomorrow, but a meter that could happen over the next decades to 100-year time period if it collapses. So that was really important for us to focus on. But that doesn't mean you have to only study the Thwaites because the processes that are melting um, the West Antarctic ice sheet are happening all across the, the face of it. So going to the Dodson, we could see meltwater coming out that was also probably coming from the Thwaites. Many of the research scientists on the expedition were primarily concerned with sea level rise Correct. and studying the glacier, but that's not what your focus was. Well, our focus is the, the other consequences. So the processes are the same. The, the heat that's being delivered to the ice shelves and melting them, melting the glaciers, is the same heat. That's the, the meltwater is, is causing sea level rise, but it's also having impacts on the ecosystem. So we were all studying the same processes, but I was also on top of that studying what happens to that meltwater. What does it do when it gets delivered to the coastal system and how does it affect the ecosystem? It's the next step. So you're, you're pouring all this water into the bathtub and raising the sea level, right? But you're also now changing the circulation of the ocean and you're changing the layers of the ocean and you're changing the temperature of the ocean and the salinity of the ocean and all of those things have consequences beyond just sea level rise Mm -hmm. because the ecosystem is very, very tightly connected to the physics of the ocean. You know, how much light is available, how much nutrient is available, the phytoplankton, the, the algae that grow and support the whole ecosystem depend on light and nutrients just like you know, just like the light and fertilizer in your houseplants, they they need light. If you put them in the dark, they don't do so well. <laughs> right, right. So if you change the layers of the water in such a way that the phytoplankton all end up really deeply mixed into the dark, they, they don't do so well. We might not think of it like this, but that particular region is one of the most co- productive coastal regions in the world. Yes, it is. Why is that? There's, there's a lot of, of um, some kinds of fertilizer available. Nitrogen. So nitrogen is required by all plants and animals, but nitrogen is a fertilizer for phytoplankton around the world. Um, And so, for example, when you introduce nitrogen fertilizer down the Mississippi River, you get an algal bloom in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, That's pretty normal. In the Southern Ocean, there's plenty of nitrogen available that doesn't seem to be being used which is kind of strange. It's, we call it a high-nutrient, low-chlorophyll zone. Mm. And there's a few of these around the world that we've been teasing apart, trying to understand for the past couple of decades. The issue is, is it's not just nitrogen. Plants also need light. And in the Antarctic, of course, there's a large time part of the year when there's not very much light, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Southern Ocean is also very windy. And so when you mix the water with this very strong wind, you cause 
the phytoplankton to be mixed deeper down into the water. So if you can imagine, I don't know, pouring the cream on your coffee and then blowing across it, the deeper you mix the cream with your wind <laughs> is carrying those poor phytoplankton down into the dark. Mm. So phytoplankton love it when they have a very shallow surface layer um, that keeps them in that light. It's like the oil floating on the salad dressing, right? It keeps mm -hmm. them close to the light. When the winds blow, they mix that oil down into the into the salad dressing. <laughs> um, and the phytoplankton get mixed deeper. And so a lot of the Southern Ocean is has these very deep mixed layers and the phytoplankton are light limited. But it also turns out that because of the way the winds blow and the fact that there's very little exposed rock on Antarctica and there's very few rivers, well, there are no rivers coming down Antarctica carrying, for example, soils or sediments, um, the iron concentrations in the Southern Ocean are very, 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 very low. Hmm. And it's just because there's no dirt. You know, there's no dirt getting blown into that ocean. And there's no dust blowing off the land into that ocean. So that means that if you get a bloom of algae in the Southern Ocean, it's probably because you have something that's providing iron. Because phytoplankton require iron. Every phytoplankton needs iron. Iron is part of what's called the photosystem, which allows them to harvest light. And they need the enzymes that they make. And they need iron. Um, it's also, yeah, so they need iron for many different things, but particularly photosystem. So if they're light, if they're light limited, they even need even more iron, right? Mm -hmm. So it's this really interesting co-limitation where they need both iron and light. And if they have more iron, then they can deal with less light. But if they have less iron, then they need even more light. So it's a really interesting trying to figure out for any given spot what's the most limiting. And in the Southern Ocean, generally, it's both of those things. They don't have enough of either one. So trying to figure out where's the iron coming from is, because you is saw, a challenge. Because yeah. you saw a phytoplankton bloom. If you see a bloom, then there must be iron, right? right? So the question was, where's the iron coming from? And when we first went down there 15 years ago, we just assumed that the iron was trickling out of the glacier. You know, I, I, if you've ever seen a glacier from Alaska, you've probably seen the big, like, dirt that's on the glacier, right? Gl glaciers aren't perfectly pure ice. Um, and that could be, but it turned out after we went down there, I don't know if you want me to tell this whole story, but the, you know, 10 years ago when we went down for the second or third time, um, we went up close to the glacier the face of the Dotson Ice Shelf. And when we were there, we discovered, I suppose, or found a very strong current of water coming out from under the ice shelf. And we took samples of it. It was about the size of the Amazon River, which was ironic because I had also been studying the Amazon River about the same but time. But that's massive, though. It's massive, yeah. It's a huge, huge, huge amount of water coming out from under, and it's not fresh water. This is ocean water that's been freshened just a little bit by the melt. And this current comes out, and we sampled it, and what we found was that the iron concentration in that current was very high compared to the surrounding waters. And so we found, if, if I can say that, um, the source of iron to this polynya, to this region. The question was, how does that iron then get delivered and spread around and mixed and contribute? You know, how does that work. You know, we found the source of it, but we didn't really know how to get from A to B. So, so when we came home from that trip, we started working with someone who does computer simulations of the ocean. And it was wonderful. We spent 
five years working together, building a simulation of this ecosystem hmm. with all the physics and all of the sea ice and all of the glacial melt and the shape of the basin. I mean, he can, he can, it's almost like, you know, a computer game where you, you it's a 3D model. <laughs> you've got the water moving around according to basic physics principles, and you've got the biology working according to basic biology principles, and you can make some predictions about what's happening down there. And what he uh, helped us see was that there probably wasn't enough iron by itself in the glacier, in the ice. That, but, but what was happening was the, the deep, warmer, salty water, which is responsible for melting the glacier. And I haven't told you that story yet, so maybe I need to back up. <laughs> oh, it's so complicated. So the reason the glacier is melting is because increasingly warm ocean water from offshore is getting pushed onshore and bringing that heat to the base of the ice shelves. So the glaciers are not melting because the air temperature is warm. Mm. The glaciers are melting because the ocean is warm. Warming. Warming. Right. Correct. Um, and being increasing, so more warm waters from offshore are the winds, this Amundsen Sea Low that I mentioned, the winds are increasingly pushing this warm water. It's warmer and it's coming on at a greater rate. Mm. And, this, and that's what the Thwaites Glacier Project is really studying is what is controlling the rate of that heat that's being delivered to the glacier. Wow. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Yeah. We know that it's related to the winds and we know that the water is a little bit warmer than it used to be. So those two things together are causing... Um, the, the melting of the glacier, but it's happening not at the surface, but deep in the ocean, about 1,800 feet below the surface, wow. 2,000 feet below the surface, because um, that's the base of the glacier. That's where the, the glacier's coming out and sitting on the bottom of the ocean, you know, grounded. Mm -hmm. And so melting at this grounding line by this warm, salty, deep water is. And when I say warm, yeah. how, how warm do you suppose I, I mean? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, 10 degrees? Two degrees. <laughs> so, but, Fahrenheit. <laughs> uh, 30, 37, 38 Fahrenheit. Mm. Um, it's the temperature of your refrigerator. Mm. If you put ice cubes in your refrigerator, they melt mm -hmm. because, I mean, they don't melt real fast, but they do melt. Right. So this is water that's the temperature of your refrigerator coming down underneath the glacier and melting it from the bottom like the toe of a, of a like melting off the toe of a landslide. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the glacier keeps slipping down the more you remove the toe of it that keeps falling and the and moving the grounding line actually lets the warm water get even deeper underneath the glacier well wow. so that's why the glaciers are melting is this warm water but what we realized working with and i'll call him pierre pierre is the um the computer modeler who we were working with what we noticed was that that warm salty water when it melts the glacier now you've added one or two percent pure fresh water from the melt to that two degree salty water. And at two degrees, the salinity of the water controls the density. So that tiny little bit of meltwater causes the density of the seawater to be so much reduced that now it wants to float to the surface. So again, you're like adding oil to water and now the water is more buoyant and it floats. Actually, it doesn't float. It shoots <laughs> up to because water, low-density water does not want to be below the surface. It mm. wants to rise up. It's like trying to push a, a beach ball under, the, under a swimming pool, right? Yeah, yeah. It wants to shoot to the surface. And so that's what we saw when we saw that current coming out from under the glacier was this now buoyant plume. We call it a plume of water that's been created below 
the surface and now wants to get out as fast as it can. And so what that meant was, oh, well, what's the iron concentration of that deep water to begin with, right? Because turns out deep water has a lot of iron in it because that water's been down in the dark for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's just been collecting iron, of, you know, all the things that are breaking down. And it's like, you know, the leaf litter. This, it's the deep stuff that hasn't no phytoplankton have lived in for a very long time. And so there's a lot of uh, recycled nutrient in that water. And so it's full of iron, it turns out. So when you take that little bit of meltwater, which has a tiny bit of iron in it, and you add it to the deep water, now we have something called upwelling, which maybe upwelling is a word lots of oceanographers use to describe when you take deep water and bring it to the surface and it fuels algae blooms all over the world. Usually it's wind-driven upwelling, like off the coast of Peru or off the coast of California. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when you go swimming in California, the water's really cold. Mm -hmm. Why is it really cold? Well, it's because the winds off of California are causing wind-driven upwelling, bringing deep water up to the surface right near the coast. Mm, And for the same reason, the water on the southeast coast is warm. Right. Right, exactly. Unscripted is a production of the Franklin College of Arts and Sciences, the oldest, largest, and most academically diverse college at the University of Georgia. More than 650 faculty members provide instruction in every classical discipline and all branches of empirical inquiry. Critical thinking skills, from languages and literature to biological sciences, build the foundation for every profession as they empower students to be informed, engaged citizens. For more on the Franklin College, visit franklin.uga.edu. We're back for more of our conversation with University of Georgia oceanographer Patricia Yeager, who spent two months on a research expedition in Antarctica over winter 2022. So this upwelling, if you will, that's driven by buoyancy or that fresh water making it much lighter is what's delivering so many nutrients to the surface ocean of the Polynya. All of that, it it (laughs) seems to produce a very thriving ecosystem. And we have a tendency to try to think about, I think it's just, you know, a reaction, the tendency to try to see or understand this as either good or bad. Ah, well, yeah, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're describing a shifting food web, but civilians may try to wonder, is that, that sounds good. Right. Or is that terrible? So so this is an excellent question. And with climate change, there's always going to be winners and losers. This is something I've said for many, many years, is when the climate changes, some animals or some phytoplankton are going to be able to take advantage of that situation, and others are going to disappear because they, they don't like the change. Same is true for animals. So, So changing ecosystems don't have an inherent moral value or an inherent goodness or badness. They're just changing. Now, if you want to say, well, I really like the polar bears, and if they go away, that's bad, that's totally fair, right? (laughs) But if you're a salmon that's moving into the Arctic Ocean because now the habitat is better for you, and I said Arctic, I don't want to confuse the issue, but um, polar oceans both in the north and the south are changing very fast, and Mm -hmm. the ecosystem is responding in in a change. So this Polynya, this really productive area of the Polynya, we think that this process of buoyant upwelling has been going on naturally for a long time. It's just been slower. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gla- glaciers naturally melt at a, a you know small rate. The issue is that the glacier is now melting much, much, much faster. So what we don't know is how does this changing melt rate 
affect the rate at which the ecosystem is responding to this natural fertilizer. So we, that's what we don't know. That's why we built the model, because we only have a few observations over the last few decades down there. We don't have a ton of data. We haven't been watching the system for 100 years to see what did it look like 100 years ago before climate change really started having an effect or before anthropogenic warming. So what we have are satellite images of the greenness going back probably almost 30 years. So we can look at the satellite images and see what the surface manifestation of the bloom was, as you can see from this, you know, way up in the sky. And we've looked at that. And again, the, the trick with the Amundsen Sea is because of this Amundsen Sea low, one year to the next to the next to the next to the next is very different, highly variable. So it's very hard to see a signal of climate change in that really noisy interannual variability. This is a challenge for a lot of scientists trying to determine whether something is due to anthropogenic warming or is just a natural variability. And it's only been the last couple of decades that we've seen in many systems that we've come out of that signal to noise or we've come out of that noisy variability. And we know for sure, for example, that air temperatures are way outside of the natural variability, right? Mm -hmm. But some of the ocean temperatures are still, <laughs> well, some of the ocean temperatures are way outside the natural variability as well. In the Amundsen Sea, where the variability is really high and we don't have a lot of data, it's, it's hard to say for sure that there's been any trend in the ecosystem. So that's what we're trying to work on with this model. However, um, here's the caveat. <laughs> and this is the other half of the story. And why the system is so complicated is the sea ice. So what I haven't told you yet about is about the sea ice. So there's two kinds of ice in Antarctica. There's glacial ice, which is sitting on the land, coming down to meet the ocean. And then there's sea ice. And sea ice is frozen ocean. Every winter, the surface of the Antarctic Ocean freezes because um, the air temperature is very cold, like, mm. you know, really, really freezer temperatures. Mm. And so the, the top meter or so, top three or four feet of the ocean, freeze every winter. And then that sea ice melts in the summer. And then it freezes in the winter and it melts in the summer. What we've seen, my colleague Sharon Stammerjohn, who's at University of Colorado, she's been looking at all the satellite data from the sea ice because we have pretty, well, because you can see the ice with radar and microwave, which is easier to see through clouds sometimes. There's some data you can see the sea ice even if it's dark or even if it's cloudy. Anyway, the sea ice is definitely declining in this part of Antarctica. And so when we first went down there, we were studying, well, how does the loss of the sea ice affect the ecosystem? Because we know that the ecosystem is very tightly coupled to the sea ice, the penguins, the krill, the sea ice algae. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, uh, just like the Arctic, there's this whole ecosystem associated with the sea ice itself. And if the sea ice goes away, you're losing that ecosystem. It's kind of like losing a coral reef, right? You're completely removing a whole biome. <laughs> right, right. You had that wonderful picture of an elephant seal from the expedition. Right, right. Yeah, so lots of things depend on the ice. Mm -hmm. um, and they need the ice either to feed or to reproduce or to haul out or, yeah. So losing the sea ice has its own impact on the ecosystem. And until we figured out the glacial link, we were mostly focused on the sea ice losses. That mm. was what we were doing 10 years ago. It wasn't until we found this huge meltwater plume that we thought, oh, oh, we better also be looking at this other thing. So the sea ice losses are also happening. And the polynya this year was one of the largest it has ever been. So we do know that the polynyas are opening up sooner in the year 
um, their, the ice that freezes back in the winter is reduced and thinner. Um, and so what effect does that have also on the ecosystem? And that's what we're also working on. <laughs> um, the, uh, the Thwaites Glacier is enormous. We say it's the size of Florida, and it's almost like a microcosm mm -hmm. because that could be difficult to comprehend, as can a lot of what you just described. Right, sorry. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. But it's a dilemma for, yeah. again, civilians. Sure. Non-scientists. Right. So the Polynya, the ecosystem, just to give you a scale, is about half the size of the state of Georgia. So wow. Does that help you understand? So there's this big open water area. Imagine it's like a lake, except it's not a lake. It's a, it's a coastal ocean ecosystem surrounded by sea ice. It's an opening in the sea ice that creates light and nutrients so that the algae can grow. Mm. And again, it's about half the size of the state of Georgia. So it's a pretty big area mm -hmm. to get across it. You know, on a ship that goes 10 miles an hour, takes a couple days. <laughs> <laughs> um, while I have you here, I have to ask you this. Um, it was just announced last week that the carbon level in the atmosphere hit oh. a new milestone. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said its monitoring station in Hawaii averaged 421 parts per million the month of May. And May is when all the, the crucial greenhouse gas hits its yearly high. <sighs> Sigh. This kills me. Yeah. So we are trying, uh, lowercase t, trying a lot of things, but nothing's working. Are we trying anything? Are we trying enough? So in, in well, we're not doing enough. No, we're not doing enough. Um, and that's a problem because if we don't get a handle on this, we don't have very long to respond. We have to get a handle on this in the next decade or two. Um, otherwise, we're going to see catastrophic impacts. So I can tell you what we're doing in Georgia. We have a project that I have been peripherally involved with through my Georgia Climate Project work called Georgia Drawdown. One of the spinoffs from Georgia Climate Project was Georgia Drawdown. And it's a special project looking at the top 20 solutions for Georgia. And it includes really important things like solar, Increasing solar, increasing, uh, there's some wind opportunities, but mostly for Georgia, it's the solar. Switching from coal-based and natural gas-based electricity to solar. That would be huge. for. The, and the state of Georgia has so much sunshine. Mm -hmm. This is a no-brainer. We could be exporting energy to other states all around us if we had the infrastructure to do so. Mm -hmm. um, companies from outside of Georgia are buying up land in South Georgia to build solar farms. Why do we not have a handle on this and make it a Georgia resource? So uh, if you go to Georgia Drawdown, there's 20 top solutions and it includes things like food waste because food waste is a major source of methane in our landfills and that's contributing to climate change. So there's, if you go to the Georgia Drawdown website, you can see what those top 20 solutions are and some of them are very simple and very easy to implement. They've also engaged with businesses uh, to get the climate commitments, the carbon reduction commitments of, of major businesses like Delta, UPS. Uh, lots of good businesses are getting on board. So we know how to fix this. Mm -hmm. We don't have to invent anything new. Right. We just have to change some of our infrastructure. And I was hoping that would happen this year, but it's been a challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, it's going to take a redoubled efforts from all of us. But I really appreciate your efforts, and thanks for being here today. Well, thank you. It's really, really great to talk to you.